If you're new with us, we're uh, working through uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul is dealing with all sorts of problems uh, in this church. Uh, and uh, today and uh, in two weeks' time as we finish the chapter, we're dealing with uh, singleness and marriage, contentment. Uh, so let's pray together and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your word today. Uh, we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God, the people of God may be equipped for every good work. And I pray that you would use your word today to equip us for every good work, uh, including the work of relationships, including the work of contentment. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ, that in whatever subject we're talking about, our eyes would be fixed on him. And as we behold the Lord Jesus today, we would become more like him. And we pray this in his good name. Amen. The comedian Chris Rock once said, right, you can be married and bored or single and lonely. Ain't no happiness nowhere. But the Bible does paint a very different picture. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is one of the most significant chapters in the Bible on the goodness of both singleness and marriage. Paul teaches here that you can glorify God in either status. He actually refers to both situations as gifts. So we know that the Bible holds marriage in high regard. We hear a lot of sermons and teachings about marriage, books written on marriage, and so on. Uh, Hebrews 13 is one place where uh, this is spoken of, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. But even though this is right to honor marriage and to uh, uphold a biblical view of marriage, uh, believing that it is God's idea, God's design, Paul teaches here that it is not necessary to live the Christian life. He is actually single himself, and he prefers it. Now, in between these two passages on singleness and marriage, which are verses 1 to 8, uh, 16 and verses 25 to the end of the chapter, sandwiched in between that is a section on contentment. And uh, we'll, we'll take that up uh, today. And, uh, but there is that theme of contentment sort of running all the way through this chapter. Now, the Corinthian church and the contemporary church really shared a, share a common problem, and that is the deficient understanding of singleness. For some in the Corinthian church, they exalted singleness too much. And the contemporary church often denigrates singles. You hear very few sermons on singleness. Others often analyze those who are single and wonder why they've had a failure to launch. Some churches won't hire single pastors. I remember as a, a young minister, I was invited in uh, Louisiana to preach at a church, and my friend Byron drove me. And uh, it was funny because I told him, I hope I don't have to sit on the, the platform during the singing, uh, as was custom in many, many Baptist churches, and, and because, you know, I just feel weird up there. Um, but I did, and I sat up there the whole time. I didn't know the words of most of the songs, uh, and then preached. And then they asked if I would be interested in, in applying to be their pastor. And of course, I did. I was excited about that, and I sent my resume in, and uh, they came back and said, sorry, we, we won't hire a single pastor. Now, I didn't have much of a filter on my mouth back then, and, uh, you know, I might have said something along the lines that Jesus was single, uh, but nevertheless, um, <laughs> there, there is that perception that uh, to really be a fulfilled human being and to really be qualified to do ministry, then you need to be married. And sometimes singles feel like second-class citizens, and that should never be the case in the church. We have a lot of singles in the church here at Imago Day. We have 178 single members. 
That's not counting our attenders. That's just 178 single members. We have 120 single females and 58 single men. I asked my wife what I could say after saying that. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just going to leave it there. Uh, that, those are just the facts, okay? Um, Paul is, is very positive about single status, and he gives us some important instructions about singleness and marriage. Tom Schreiner, in a very good article you might Google later, called uh, Did Paul Prefer Singleness, writes, the difference between Roman Catholics and Protestant, at least in the United States, is quite remarkable. In Roman Catholicism, one can't be a priest unless one is single. But in Protestantism, at least in most parts of the United States, it is difficult to become a senior pastor unless one is married. A remarkable exception exists in Great Britain, where a great number of single pastors lead churches like uh, the late John Stott, uh, Dick Lucas, Vaughn Roberts, and more. So there is a, a, a quite a, a perception about singleness, uh, as Schreiner points out. Uh, when I lived in New Orleans, uh, the majority of the city was Catholic, and uh, I played on a, a, a city softball league one time, and I could not get across to my teammates that I was not a priest. Um, they just, I, I made a play up the middle one time, dove, got a ball, threw the guy out, and, and the guy in like, the outfield was like, I've never seen a blank priest play shortstop like that before. And, and I would get up to bat, and they would say, let's go, Father, let's go, Father, and they would... <laughs> They asked me if I could have sex. They, could, they said, no, you can't get married. And I'm like, no, my wife is in the stands, actually. Uh, <laughs> but that is the perception of, of Catholicism. You can't be married. And in Protestantism, uh, we almost take the opposite view when we shouldn't, that you must be married uh, in order to be a Christian leader. Paul talks a lot about uh, various things here, and he gives us a compelling vision of both. Um, and as we hear this, we are reminded that Jesus himself was single, Jesus had desires, yet without sin. And so that's significant. Now, as you read through this, this passage, um, you see that Paul is very practical. In other places, when he talks about marriage, he's very exalted in his language, like marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. That's an amazing idea. Um, and we study the Song of Songs, which is very poetic as it relates to marriage. This is actually more down-to-earth, like it's better to marry than burn with passion. We can understand that one. <laughs> we don't need a secret decoder ring to understand most of what Paul is, uh, is on about here. And he begins to address various concerns from the Corinthian church, uh, like in verse 1 where he opens up by saying, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Uh, that phrase will pop up a number of times as Paul again is, is like a pastor answering questions from uh, the church uh, on various things. And last week, you remember in chapter 6, verse 12, he addressed the, the problem with some in the church who thought anything goes with sexuality. And now in chapter 7, verse 1, he's got the opposite problem where people are saying you should not have sex even within marriage. So he addressed sort of this, this casual view, this permissive view of sexuality in chapter 6, and now he addresses uh, what's often referred to as the ascetic view, that celibacy was the real only true way uh, to be uh, a godly person, and some were advocating that you shouldn't have sex uh, within marriage, and others were even saying you should leave your marriage because of sexual relations. And so Paul has to correct all of this uh, in this, this church. So let's look at this passage together. First of all, Paul talks about being faithful in marriage or in singleness, and then he talks about being content in the Lord. 
So first, he addresses uh, marriage in verses 2 to 5 when he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So this is not the only motivation to get married. Um, Paul doesn't have such a a low view of marriage. uh, As he says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, you better get married. Um, We should point out that if that's the only reason you get married, chances are if you get married, you will still struggle uh, with with sexual sin. But this is a very sex-positive chapter in the Bible. And Paul is going to go on to say that the best defense against sexual immorality for married people is to have sexual relations. Usually Matt Sigmund preaches these sermons, but today I'm I'm tasked with it. Uh, And you notice here that uh, husbands and wives uh, are to submit to each other uh, for the the blessing and good of the other, that the spouse's body belongs to the other. Verses 3 to 4, he says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. That is, he should fulfill his sexual duty, meeting her needs. And then he adds, and likewise, the wife to her husband. Each spouse... Each spouse's body belongs to the other. This is very Song of Solomon. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. And then you notice in verse 4 that, that Paul is not a chauvinist. He issues the same charge to both men and women, that the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. He speaks about this equality in marriage, which was not normal at all in Paul's day. Greek men did not believe that wives had authority over their bodies. But Paul, again, paints a radically different picture. I said this last week, that it's, what Paul says in chapter 6 and 7 is really revolutionary. It was then and it still is today. Marriage is not one-sided. It's reciprocal. It's, it's a mutual relationship. And so he speaks on this, this matter uh, quite candidly. Now, this is not a, a license to any kind of uh, perversion within marriage. And this is, uh, doesn't mean that you are to dominate one another. <laughs> Come over here, you body of mine. Uh, you know, uh, Gordon Fee, the commentator, says, the emphasis is not you owe me, but I owe you. Right. So there, there must be care and honor. Um, Paul is not uh, advocating any kind of perversion or any kind of domination. Um, and as Paul is talking about uh, 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 intimacy here, this doesn't mean that there aren't other important components to marriage. I think you all know that very well. This is not just a sexual exchange. There needs to be in good romance time and talking and companionship and all of that stuff. Um, So we're mindful of that. Um, Here then is the admonition that Paul gives in verse 5. Stop depriving one another. (laughs) So these relations are, are not like a bonus or an option. They're actually commanded. And this is one of the blessings of marriage and one of the obligations of marriage that you should not deprive one another. Paul lays out one exception, except that you might stop for prayer. (laughs) Even that is further qualified when he says it must be mutual, uh, a mutual understanding that you have an agreement, literally you are in symphony. And it is to be, you notice there, for a limited time. You are to come together Again, I think the idea is the longer you refrain, the more opportunity you give to the devil. And there is a purpose, right, that you may devote yourself to prayer. If you uh, 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 
pause for a moment. This is, it's not because you're bored or you're not in the mood. It's for a spiritual purpose. So this is to be a regular aspect of, of, of a Christian marriage. Why? Because Satan would love to divide and destroy a couple, keeping them away from each other. Satan is a schemer, and he will work in any area to destroy our lives, and he will certainly attack this area. Now, how often should couples, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> get some water, man. <laughs> Paul doesn't say, and I'm not going to suggest a plan to you. Um, I would quote Martin Luther, who said, twice a week provides ample protection from the tempter. Well, you guys can work that out on yourselves. You're, you're, you're sensible people. Um, now, at this point, married people, at least some of them, are saying, this is a great sermon. <laughs> and singles are like, this is awful. This is the worst sermon on singleness I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, just, just wait one minute here, because then Paul adds the kicker in verse, uh, verses 6 and 7 as he talks about singleness. You would think after all that he has said about sexual fulfillment, he says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. So after extolling marriage, Paul then puts it in its place. And he says, I'm not commanding marriage, but I am conceding. He says, I am content to be single. And later in the chapter, we'll look at it in a few weeks, in verses uh, 28, uh, he says that uh, those who are married will have many worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. He talks about the, goes on to talk about the freedom he has as a single person to do ministry and so on. So he says, I wish others were gifted like me, but he recognizes not everyone is. So there's a lot of freedom here that Paul gives. There's wisdom, there's freedom here. Now, he doesn't really drill down into what this idea of a gift is. Um, is Paul saying that he has no sexual passions whatsoever? I don't think that's what... Uh, we, we, we should conclude. I think Paul is, is saying that this gifted person has been blessed with a certain sense of contentment. Uh, Jesus speaks elsewhere of eunuchs who have chosen to be so for the sake of the kingdom of God. I think those who are gifted in singleness may still have sexual passions, but they're able to put their sin to death and be content. They're able to focus on the kingdom, and if you can do that, that's a gift of God, and we should commend people for doing that. Thistleton, a commentator, writes, the parallel is not celibacy versus marriage, but the gift of a positive attitude which makes the most of the freedoms of celibacy without frustration. And I think that's a good way to think about this gift, this uh, idea of contentment. And I don't think this means necessarily that a person is, is to be lifelong as a single person, that seasons change and, uh, and so on. And Paul is not trying to elevate one as being more spiritual in the chapter than the other uh, state. All right, so then Paul speaks uh, to the unmarried and the widows when he says to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is, is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, he used the masculine term here for unmarried, which can be, be taken widower as well as widow. And it is possible that Paul was a widower. His wife could have died. It is certainly possible that Paul was married. We don't know, we, and we can't know, but rabbis were almost always married. Paul referred to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, and it would be hard to think a Hebrew of Hebrews would not be married. But we don't know what happened to his wife. If he was married, either she died or she left Paul after his conversion. Who knows? But Paul here says that it was good for them to remain single. 
Now, the ascetics would have been telling the widows and widowers not to remarry. And Paul says, there's freedom. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. That is, to marry someone who is following the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. <laughs> That's a little dick, I think, at the Corinthians, who uh, were elevating their spirituality. Uh, and so Paul said that they're free to marry in the Lord. That is, in the Lord's way, under the Lord's reign, he doesn't prohibit a remarriage. All right? Uh, Paul then says in verse 9, uh, very practically, that if you cannot exercise self-control, you should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Burn with passion, I, I think you know what that means. Um, that if a person is, again, has great desire uh, in this way, that marriage is designed in part to fulfill you in that way. It's not the only reason to marry, but it is a reason. It doesn't sound very romantic at all. Song of Songs is way more romantic than 1 Corinthians 7, I think. <laughs> you, you can imagine a guy getting on bended knees saying, baby, I can't control my passions. Would you please marry me? Uh, I'm like a little Caesar's hot and ready. Uh, you know, uh, would, you, would you marry me? Don't use that line, okay? Uh, Sam Alberry has a great little book on a singleness called Seven Myths of Singleness. And he says, at first glance, it's like Paul says marriage is a kind of release for uncontrollable sexual passion. And it makes me think of those ramps they have on steeply descending roads for runaway trucks. <laughs> if your sexual feelings are barreling out of control, then just swerve off into marriage and that'll take care of it. But as he says, it, it's not the only reason to marry, but it is a reason. Better to marry than to burn with passion. What is not an option is impurity. Paul basically says marriage, fine. Singleness, fine. Living out your sexual passions outside of marriage, not fine. If you can't exercise self-control, get married. I don't recommend, I've said this many times, long engagements because those temptations are not getting weaker, they're getting stronger. So Paul urges singles to pursue holiness. This takes spiritual discipline. This is a war. This is, they need encouragement. They need accountability. Um, they, need, they need brothers and sisters uh, to, to, to help them uh, however they can. It's a call to, to singles to focus on the kingdom and to not be constantly consumed with the idea of marriage. Now, in verses 10 to 16, he talks about avoiding divorce. And he addresses the person who doesn't like marriage anymore um, or doesn't want to, to be married uh, to the person for some reason. And uh, they thought... Some in Corinth, it seems, thought they could be more useful if not married. And so Paul first addresses, I think, believers, and he says that they should avoid divorce. Verses 10 and 11, to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord, meaning he's quoting Jesus from the Gospels, that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else she be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Jesus uh, spoke on this matter, didn't he, as he quoted Genesis 1 and 2 uh, in places like Matthew chapter 19. The words uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, separate, divorce, and leave, are used interchangeably. And the idea that, of course, is consistent throughout Scripture is that God's ideal plan is for husband and wife to stay together for better or for worse, to death do they part. Jesus uh, permitted divorce, it seems, uh, in uh, Matthew uh, 19, 
uh, in the case of pernei or sexual immorality. Paul doesn't bring up that so-called exception clause here in 1 Corinthians 7, probably because the Corinthians were looking for reasons to dissolve their marriage. Um, he does later in the chapter talk about desertion in verse 15. Um, divorce in, 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 with div- uh, uh, adultery and desertion, as uh, Blomberg points out, both destroys the one flesh union. Um, and so um, Paul then speaks to those who've been married to uh, uh, an unbeliever, uh, a mixed marriage of being a Christian and a non-Christian. And he says, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, meaning that Jesus didn't specifically in the Gospels address the matter of a believer and an unbeliever being wed together. But Paul does. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, there are probably some in the Corinthian church that thought being married to an unbeliever would uh, defile the person, and Paul says that's not the case. And he tells the believer here not to, to, to actually try to stay together, uh, to not initiate a divorce. The unbeliever should, should find in the believer an example of sacrificial love. Uh, the unbeliever should not lock out uh, the, the believer should not lock out the unbeliever from their life. They should be loving and patient and kind uh, to them. First Peter chapter three, of course, speaks to this as well. And there's an overflow of blessing, as he says in verse 14. They are made holy. This doesn't mean that they're saved, that they're Christians, but that there are some benefits and blessings that spill over from a believer onto an unbeliever. The same with children. Uh, a believing mom or dad can have an, a sanctifying effect on the entire family. And so he says uh, that. Then he talks about separation in verse 15 when he says, if the unbeliever separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So Paul says, if the unbeliever refuses to remain, let uh, him or her go. And you notice it's the unbeliever that's initiating it. Now, the question is often raised in this case, what about remarriage? And it's a question because Paul doesn't really answer it. And it's hard to get down to it simply by looking at the words not enslaved. What does that actually mean? Some argue that it refers to being freed from marriage and one is, to call, is called to remain in the state of being uh, single. Others argue it refers to being free to remarry on the basis of a legitimate divorce. And it's hard to make a call on these two Greek words, but I, my view tends to go with the latter. Thomas Cranmer, who wrote uh, the traditional marriage vows that many of us use, uh, at least some uh, form of them, um, wrote in uh, one of his works uh, that there were five reasons for divorce. He mentioned them as adultery, desertion without, with malice, prolonged absence without news, deadly hostility, and ill treatment. You can make those three A's, adultery, abandonment, and abuse. Um, There's also a good resource in the Westminster Confession that's very short, Article 24 on this matter. But the issue for Paul isn't necessarily to to give us all of the the grounds or so-called grounds for divorce. His focus here is stay together. Avoid divorce at all costs. And he adds in verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And I've seen this happen before. The believer, unbeliever, 
are married, they stay together, and over a period of time, sometimes it's a long time, the unbeliever becomes a Christian, and what a joy that is to see. So Paul says, whatever state you're in, in marriage or in singleness, be faithful. You can glorify God in both situations. Both have unique challenges, um, both present certain opportunities, uh, and so he says, be faithful. Secondly, he says, be content, verses 17 to 24. I think this passage provides a, a rationale for what comes before it, or divorce and remarriage, and also what comes after it, uh, as he talks about those who are unmarried. He states the same basic idea in this paragraph three times, in verse 17, 20, and 24. Verse 17, he puts it like this, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So he's talking about Christian contentment, this idea of, of being uh, delighting in God's uh, wise ordering of our lives and allowing him to guide us and to lead us, as we've just sung uh, in the hymn. And he gives two examples of a social situation that one may find themselves in, uh, in the time of this writing. One was uh, related to uh, religious distinctions, as he mentioned circumcision, and the second had to do with a social distinction uh, as, uh, with slavery. These were two major distinctions at the time. Now, you'll notice also that Paul uh, uses this word call. If you just scan the text, you'll see it uh, a number of times. It occurs nine times in Greek. And it speaks of our call to salvation primarily, but also to this idea of one's condition or vocation or situation that God has called us to it. So there's a, a vertical dimension of this calling. We've been called to Christ and a horizontal dimension that, that we have been placed at or assigned in our current status, our current situation. And he's saying the Lord is sovereign over both callings. That he is calling, he's sovereign over calling us to faith in Jesus Christ and he's sovereign over our lot in life right now. And that's actually very encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> that somebody's in charge. Um, now, it, it might first appear that as you read through this text that Paul is saying you should never try to change your situation. Should you never look for a different job? Should you never think about marriage? Should you never accept a promotion? Should you never move? I think some people uh, read Paul in that way, and some commentators throughout history have argued that that was what, exactly what Paul was saying because he thought the return of Christ was coming at any moment, and he was wrong. But there are good reasons to suggest that Paul is not being that hard line, that this, that this passage is not saying you should never try to change your situation. And there are several reasons for that. For starters, when Paul was called to faith in Christ, his own situation changed dramatically. His friends changed, his vocation changed, uh, everything about his life changed. Further, you notice in the text itself that Paul says regarding slavery, which was, by the way, very varied in the Greco-Roman period and not race-based, um, and which is why sometimes the translation has bondservant rather than slave because of the variety of ways in which slavery was, was uh, experienced. Paul says regarding that, if you can gain your freedom, do it. So he's actually telling them in the text that if you can change a situation, a social situation, you should try to do that if it is, it, if it is advantageous for you and for the kingdom. And then regarding circumcision, his point is that this religious exercise doesn't gain you anything before God. Nor would marriage, nor would any other change in circumstances. 
The focus of the paragraph is that what matters most is your relationship to the Lord. What matters most in your life is finding your delight in the Lord and seeking to please Him. Elsewhere he says in the, uh, to the Galatians, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith working through love. So you can, you can have this faith working through love in whatever lot you find yourself in. Single person, married person, circumcised person, uh, uh, enslaved, or uh, whatever. That out of your heart, serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Your primary concern should not be about your social status or marital status, but your spiritual status. That's the main uh, point of the paragraph. Not stay where you are without exception, but serve Christ wherever you are. That's the point. There may be a time in which you can change your situation. If you can, great. But wherever you are, as they say, bloom where you've planted. Wherever you find yourself. Old Wearsby is right when he says, we are prone to think that a change in circumstances is always the answer to our problem. But the problem is usually within us, not around us. The heart of, the, of every problem is the problem of the heart. Right? And we do tend to think that way. Wilson says it's helpful to insert yourself into verses 21 to 4 when he says, if the opportunity to be married presents itself, you should take it. If it doesn't, don't let it trouble you. The person who is single at conversion is married to the Lord. And whether you get married or not, you must not regard yourself as owned by anyone except Christ. So let's, let's summarize Paul's points here on contentment as I land the plane. He says five things essentially about this subject, and I'm going to be brief here. Number one, take comfort in the Lord's sovereignty. Notice that he says, the Lord has assigned us this place, where we are. The Lord reigns over the nations. He reigns over our neighborhoods. He reigns over us. So we may not like our, certain, our, 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 uh, our uh, present circumstances very much, but we take comfort that the Lord is sovereign. Secondly, make obedience your number one priority. Obedience to Jesus not a change in circumstances. Isn't that what he says? What matters, verse 19, is keeping the commandments of God in whatever station you find your, yourself. Bloom where you're, where you're planted. Number three, don't obsess over a situation. But if you have the opportunity to change it for the better, do it. The Lord may give you opportunity. And most importantly, number four, number five. Number four, Remember the gospel. Notice what he says at the end of this text in verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. We are owned by Jesus Christ. Single person who's a Christian, married person who's a Christian, both are true. That we have been purchased by Jesus Christ. You are never a second class citizen in the kingdom of God. No matter your background, no matter your current social status. No one is more bought with a price than, than you are. No one is more justified by God than you are. And so we, we often evaluate our lives, don't we, based on our success, our job performance, our status, and the only status that really matters is this fundamental status, that, I, that Jesus is my Lord. I'm His forever. That doesn't change if I'm not a pastor. I plan on continuing to be a pastor. It, it, you could have a, a higher religious uh, uh, calling, perhaps, in your life. You think that would make you matter more to God or more pleasing to God, but it doesn't. 
You're bought with a price. You're valued. There's, there's certain dignity to this. Paul said this more than once, hasn't he? You're loved by him. So much so that Jesus shed his blood for you. Finally, remember, along with that, that your identity is not in what you do for a living. It's who you are in Christ. That's what matters. You know, when you start chatting with a stranger, someone you've never met before, they, they usually ask you, so what do you do? And that's fine, of course. I, I do the same thing. But the most important thing about you, the most important thing about me, is not what's on our business card. The most important thing about you is whose you are. You belong to Jesus Christ. And your primary, your primary identity is not in what you do, but the fact that you are a son or daughter of God. That identity is to shape our lives. That identity is to motivate us. That identity is to give us a contentment. In whatever station we find ourselves, we want to be faithful to the Lord Jesus until we see him. For all of us are really waiting for one marriage. That's talked about in Revelation chapter 19. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Praise be to God for the gospel. Praise be to God for a God who's sovereign over the affairs of our lives. Praise be to God for his word and his wisdom. His word is not only true, but it's good. It's for our good. And thanks be to God for it. Let's ask him to apply it to our hearts today. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the wisdom of your word. Thank you for the good news uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're grateful that we're bought with a price as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. It's a tangible way for us to be reminded of that. I pray that we would uh, believe that our fundamental identity is not in what we do, but in whose we are. And I pray that that would uh, fill our hearts uh, today with afresh with gratitude and encouragement. And so continue to, to receive the praises of your people as we continue to worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen.